for any of you that are uh, somewhat new uh, to uh, to church here. And um, it's exciting to just see that growth and um, an opportunity. Uh, I'm Doug Schultz. I'm part of the elder team here. Uh, today, uh, another opportunity that we have is to to have PD go speak at, at Barakal. So uh, our senior pastor is not here today with us, and that's great that he gets to serve in that capacity, but that provides another opportunity uh, for one of our own to come here and, and serve as well. And that's Cole Moore. And I'm somewhat new to the church here. So some of you have a lot better history and know Cole as he's grown up in that in the church. Some of you may have some more stories uh, than I have. I don't have any stories that I can, can fall back on, but I have a story of my own. When my son uh, was able to, to give a sermon at uh, the church that we had attended earlier, and uh, I was super excited as a dad. I mean, what, a, what a proud moment. Um, and I was so glad I was there because uh, he stood up, he was super excited, didn't have breakfast in the morning, locked his knees, that turkey went down. I was, I was there to catch him. And uh, uh, so my one word of advice to Cole was, have breakfast this morning and, and don't lock your knees. Uh, but I think uh, hopefully that, that won't be the case. But I'll be here in the front row just just uh, as a matter of fact. But uh, so Cole's currently attending Cornerstone. He's in his second year uh, as, a, as a junior. And you know, he's already spoken um, before there. So he's all practiced up. And we're just glad to have him here this morning, Cole. So welcome. We got it? All right, sweet. Mark made sure to know, hey, Cole, this is on you. You got to turn this thing on. So I passed the first test, so here we go. (laughs) It is an absolute honor to be with you guys this morning. It is such a cool opportunity to grow up in this place um, and just be totally welcomed with open arms growing up and then be welcomed back every time I get to come home from school. Um, So thank you guys so much for allowing me to be a part of your family. Um, If you know my family, I'm sorry if you know my dad, Jeff. I know he's a bit of a handful and I only can say nice things about my mom because she was paying me off this morning. She paid breakfast, so thank you guys for, thank you. Not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. That's my one goal this morning is to not cry, so. All right, Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Um, so if you have Bibles or your phones, um, if you want to go there or turn there, um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, and this message, this chapter, this verse that we're going to start off with, Ephesians 4, 1, marks the transition in Paul's argument going from what everything he's talked about, what God has done for us, the praises, the blessings, all these things we've spent the first three chapters talking about, the blessings, to moving to what we do in response to that. And Paul makes it totally clear time and time again from now through the end of the letter that everything that we do as Christians now, has to be in response to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So before I spoil any more of my sermon, let's pray and then we will dive into the word. God, thank you for this day and just for this opportunity to be here and just to worship you, Lord. I pray that you would um, just meet us in this place and that you would speak through your word this morning and that you would challenge us and convict us from your word. God, we love you and we thank you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, it's a short passage this morning. You're welcome, but that means it's still a long message, so sorry about that. Um, I had to buy off a couple extra minutes from PD, so. But that's why you're at the early service. You're not going to miss any football or anything like that, right? So, <laughs> all right. So what do we see? Well, right off the bat in verse 1, Paul gives us a challenge. Now, Oakwood, our church uses the New International versions are, you know, kind of proper primary transition, uh, translation of speaking. And I got really mad at the New International Version this week, and I was trying to write my sermon, because it's missing the most important word of this whole chapter, maybe of the whole letter. Therefore. Every other translation, King James, the Catholic Bibles, they all have therefore, but the NIV doesn't. So I'm going to get off the complaint train and just, we're going to, we're going to preach even with the NIV. Um, but I'm going to read verse 1 again with therefore. Therefore. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life calling or worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 1 is so important, that therefore is so important, because it shows us that Paul is making a shift in his whole argument. Again, like I mentioned earlier, going from what God has done to what we do in response. I mean, you guys all know the golden rule of therefore. Every time you see a therefore in scripture, you have to go back and see what it's therefore. Ah, thank you guys, you're awake. You guys had your coffee, that's awesome. Think about it like this. It's as if Paul is saying, because of these things I've told you, because of these blessings we talked about in chapter 1, the gift of salvation that we talked about in chapter 2, the friendship and the unity and the new family we have, the new covenant we have because of Christ. Now, because of these things, in light of these things, I urge you, I challenge you, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Don't get that twisted. And that's, So important as we dive into the commands, these next couple weeks are going to be all about what we do in response, how we act, how we live, how we love, how we serve. Don't get that twisted. Don't make it obligation, legalism, because as soon as you lose sight of the grace of God and everything that he's done, the commands and the, the do this and the do that sounds like legalistic obligation, and God just sounds like the cosmic sheriff who's only out to squash anything fun. So remember that. Remember to keep God's grace in mind as we read the rest of this letter. PD did a great job highlighting this last week. He talked about how you have to be how you have to have faith and forgiveness before you can be a follower. It's like that old hymn. Now all the uh, people above the age of like 40 are going to know this, uh, but nobody else will. So how does it go? Trust and obey. Obey then trust, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But to obey, then trust. No, you guys all know that's backwards. It's trust, then obey. Keep that in mind. Do you know that today? Do you trust him today? If you don't trust him, you're never going to be able to obey. You're never going to be able to follow all these things that Paul has commanded us, that God has commanded us. Okay, so Paul urges us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received in light of what God has done. That is the challenge He doesn't try to flatter us or sweet-talk us into obedience. It's a challenge to live in light of everything that God has done for us through Christ. 
But what is this calling? There's this language of the call here that Paul talks about. What is that? That's the call of salvation. The call to know Christ and to be brought back into the family of God to be adopted. All of us who have had their sins forgiven have been called by God into that. We've been called to be saved, called into his family, adopted as his children. And it's a challenge to live differently than we once did because of what God did. I love this quote from Alistair Begg about verse 1. He says this, Paul isn't saying, try and act like sons, and maybe God will adopt you when he sees that you're kind of nice. No, it's be adopted by God, and then go out and live like a son, and then go out and live like a daughter. So I ask you this morning, before we move into be completely humble and gentle, before we move into the commands, before we, urge, or the, before we read about being urged to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, are you adopted? Because only after you're adopted can you truly live like a child of God. But what does this look like? How do we live out this challenge? How do we meet this? Well, it brings us to the characteristics of the call. We see it in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read it again. Verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul moves to attributes, characteristics that we need to embrace to meet the challenge of living worthy of the calling that we've received. And the whole purpose of embracing these is unity. Everybody say unity. Unity. Cool, you're still with me. Thank you. Now, I grew up with four siblings, big household, and then we had a fifth one added on later. So I know how hard and how miserable disunity can be in the family. And there's bickering and there's fighting and there's arguing. It's never fun, never enjoyable. And the divide between the siblings gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It destroys unity. The fighting, the bickering, the pride destroys unity. And isn't, the same, isn't it the same way with us who are brothers and sisters in Christ? People who have been adopted by God because of Christ. Now Paul gives us these attributes, these attitudes to take on these characteristics that need to define us so that unity can be built and unity can be maintained. So what are they? Let's dive into each one, each one of these attributes, um, and see how we need to embrace these for the church for unity's sake. So the first one that Paul gives us is to be completely humble. Humility. Humility is all about lowliness. Even that word lowliness, it's translated like that in some other translations. You get the picture of putting yourself below other people so that others can be lifted up. Humility. It's huge. I would argue that humility, being totally humble, is the foundation of everything that we do um, to live like believers, to walk this Christian faith, to live out the Christian life. I think humility is the foundation of that. Now, why do I think that? Well, we see humility as the foundation of Christian living elsewhere in Scripture. Um, and another a picture of this is in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, keep your thumb in Ephesians and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is humility the cornerstone? Why is humility the foundation of Christian living? Because it was Christ's foundation. It was at the center of having the mindset of Christ. Christ chose to humble himself, to make himself a servant, to lift others up, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's what that passage teaches us. This humility that defined Christ needs to define us as well. Doing nothing out of selfish desires or our own wants, but out of the needs of others, to build up the community of believers. Now, for us, humility is built and grounded in knowing who we are before a holy God. Recognizing that each person, to have a humble mindset, recognizing that each person we come in contact with is a sinner saved by grace. Just like me and just like you. The danger is is getting in our minds that somehow we're a higher level of Christian, that others are below us. It's the the holier-than-thou mindset of Christianity, where you look down from your nose on other people who struggle with certain things or, um, you know, are at a certain place of their faith journey or whatever it might be, looking down on them. And that's not what Paul is teaching us here. That pride, that ego, has no place, and it has to be replaced with humility. We need to see others the same way that we see see ourselves, No matter how different we might be, we're sinners. We're saved by God's grace alone. And pride loves to show us and teach us and tell us that we're better. Humility and pride are total opposites. A wise friend of mine told me once that pride is a prison. It traps us. Pride is so destructive and it can be so subtle. And it's all over scripture that pride cannot define us in any way, shape, or form. See, James teaches us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, those who know who they are before God. We need to be marked by humility. I mean, to tie back to our passage we just read in Philippians, Christ himself didn't see equality with God, with God as something to be taken to his own advantage, but he chose to humble himself. He decided, no, it's worth it to lower myself so that others might be lifted up. We need to take that into consideration, take a look in the mirror. It's convicting. If Christ, the God-man, humbled himself and thought it was better to humble himself and saw the value and the need to humble himself, then who are we to look down on one another? Who are we to let pride take over? Who am I to let pride take over? Humility. It's the foundation. We need to be marked by humility. Gentleness is the next attribute. And it's tied with being humble. And this one's a little bit harder to define. What does it look like to be gentle? I was asking myself. I think gentleness, you know a gentle person when you see them. It's like, man, you could tell. You could tell there's something different about them. I found this uh, definition in one of the Bible dictionaries I was using. And I really, really do enjoy it. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Remember, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, too. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self 
control. It's a work of the Spirit. And there's two implications of, of being gentle. The first one is that you submit to God from that definition. You submit to God. You surrender to his plan and to his will. And the second is there's a sense of, of peaceable, I don't know if that's a word, but peaceableness. You're peaceable with those around you. Gentleness and humility are linked together. Those who are totally humble are going to be totally gentle. Those who are humble with one another are going to be gentle with one another. So I ask you this morning, are you peaceable? Are you gentle? Is your life marked by gentleness? The next one, we're going to move on to our next command, where Paul tells us to be patient, to bear with one another in love. And man, this, this is a tough one. For patience, the King James Version of the Bible, I can't read it, but this is the one word that I got out of it. It's way, way too over my head. Uh, but I love the word that King James uses for patience. Patience. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. And I love that picture of long-suffering, being able to suffer for a long time, endure for a long time, drawn out suffering. And this patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. Again, James talks about this in James 1.19. Each of you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And that's the patience that needs to define us. And this patience allows us to bear with one another. Because let's be honest, we're pretty tough people to deal with. I'm a tough person to deal with anyways. I know I am. And this patience means that we can bear with one another and be slow to anger. Slow to get fight. Slow to get all defensive and slow to jump to conclusions. Slow to be judgmental. Patience. Now let's make this clear. I know what you're all thinking. Bearing with one another in love does not mean putting up with one another. It's not, ah, man, I got to deal with Jeff today. All right, great. Well, that's fantastic. Darn it. No, that's not what bearing with one another means. That's not what Paul, the message Paul is getting across. I love the New Living Translation puts it like this. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Making allowance for each other's love, or for each other's faults because of your love. Bearing with one another. That means we show grace for one another's struggles and faults and weaknesses. And we make room for the needs of others. That we can endure the failings of others. Essentially what he's saying is, because of your love for one another, be patient with one another and bear with one another. And it's not always easy. More often than not, bearing, I mean, that word just sounds difficult. You bear with something, you lift, you take the weight off. It sounds difficult, because it is. More often than not, it's not easy. And that's why this is done in love, the salve of grace applied. There has to be grounded in love. It has to be done, this bearing with one another has to be done in love. And that's why Paul commands us in verse 3 that we make every effort to do these things. Do you see all these attributes tied together? In order to live out the calling we've received, to live lives worthy of the gospel, we need to be marked by humility, be marked by gentleness, and patiently bearing with the faults of one another in love. All of which, by the way, are characteristic of Christ. Remember some of the people that Christ hung out with, that Jesus hung out with? Peter? Arrogant, rude, brash, quick to jump in. Christ was calm. He was patient. He was gentle. And he bore with Peter in love. But what's the end goal of these attributes then? Embracing these characteristics, these things defining us, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. What is the point? Well, the point is unity. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity 
is the goal through peace. Everybody say unity. I remember a few years back after communion, we used to sing the song called Bind Us Together. And you go like this. I'm not going to sing it because I already sang one song and I don't want to spare you guys. Bind us together. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. The Holy Spirit is what binds us together. Remember what Paul says, it's the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit binds us together. All of us who follow Christ, who have been adopted as God's children, have the Holy Spirit with us. And that Holy Spirit, it's like a spider web. It binds us all together. It connects us. It unites us. But pride, pride is like the pair of scissors that snips those strands, that snaps those cords, and breaks those bonds. And that's why Paul tells us to embrace humility, gentleness, and patience, and to bear with one another in love. Pride has no place in a church that wants to be unified. And Paul really hammers home the importance of unity in verses 4 through 6, which brings us to our third point, the community of the call. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, it's pretty clear. What's the word that we see over and over and over and over again in this, these verses? One. Paul builds off the call to unity that we saw in verse three and just makes the scale infinitely, infinitely bigger. These are the foundational beliefs of, of Christianity. You know, there might be things that divide us on the outside, worship styles or whatever it might be, but these are the things at the core of the faith that unite us, that bind us, that bring us together. Let's run through these really quickly, all of these one statements. First off, we have one body. All of us are a part of the body of Christ. That's the church. And all of us have unique roles in the body. Oakwood being just one little hunk of that body, the universal body of Christ. All of us have a part to play in keeping the body strong and healthy. We're part of one body. And there's going to be a lot of focus on the body of Christ over the next few weeks in Ephesians, so a little plug to keep coming back. One body, one spirit. We touched on this one a second ago, but the Holy Spirit is what binds us and unites us and keeps us connected to the body. Again, all of us, all of us who call, who call Christ our Savior, who are saved, who have been adopted into God's family, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And it connects us and it unites us and it energizes us to be effective for the church. And it makes the church an effective force. One hope. This is the hope we have in Jesus. The hope of eternal life. Remember Ephesians 2? You've been brought from death to life. Life everlasting. That is our hope that all of us share as Christians. It's eternal life with God and with every single person who calls on the name of the Lord. Every single person who has been adopted into the family of God. One hope. Next, we got one Lord. This is the classic Sunday school answer right here. This is Jesus. One Lord, one master overall that we follow. The one that died for you, the one that died for me. Jesus. We're all united. We're connected by the foundational belief that we have one Lord and Savior, Jesus. One faith, all Christians, 
have one universal faith in the one Jesus that died for us. This has been the faith that's been around since 33 AD, ever since Christ was resurrected. Even before then, too, if you read Hebrews 11, I mean, Hall of Faith, the one faith that unites all of us. Again, remember Ephesians 2, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith connects us. All of us have one faith, one baptism. This rite, or this faith is shown in the ordinance of baptism, the practice of baptism. This is commanded by Christ to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The picture of baptism is that you've, been, you've died with Christ and have been raised to new life with him. It's such a beautiful picture. I think of my baptism. I think of the old coal going under, the old sinful ways that he was once subject to and that ruled over him, and the new coal came out. It's the picture that we're getting at there. That's the picture of baptism. That's the picture of, of what baptism is trying to paint. If you believe in Christ and you share the faith and you're a part of the body and you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to see that as the next step in your faith journey. It's huge. Baptism is so important. And lastly, one God and Father who's over all, through all, and in all. Now, for clarity's sake, the all here that Paul is talking about is all Christians. That's the, the context shows us that all, that all word means all Christians. God is Father over all. All of our fathers. He's overall, sovereign, omnipresent, all powerful, all ruling, powerful overall. He's everywhere at the same time. He rules sovereignly over all creation. He is all of our fathers together, through all, which speaks about how close that he is. He's close to us. He's through all. He works through us. He's close to us. And lastly, he's in all. He dwells with us as the Holy Spirit. That shows that he's near and that he's personal, and he provides for us, and that he wants to be intimate with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. And these incredible truths, these ones, the body, the spirit, the hope, the Lord, the faith, the baptism, the God, and Father, all of these are what unites us. These are what bring us together, that everything that we have in common, these are the foundation on which the community of believers, the church, can have any sort of unity. These truths bind us together. So what do we do now? We covered how we're challenged by Paul to walk in a way worthy of the gospel that we've received because of Jesus Christ by embracing characteristics that build unity with one another. And this unity comes from the reality that, we've, that we're a part of one body and that we have one Holy Spirit and one hope in the Lord through one faith that is confessed in one baptism, having one God and Father who made us his children. So what now? How do we respond to this? Well, I see a few ways that we have to respond to what we've read this morning. First, I have to accept the challenge of living worthy of the gospel. This is a must. We have to accept the challenge to be worthy walkers of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that we have to respond to everything that God has done for us. And then he gives us the outline of how to do this. This is the foundation of what Christian living looks like. Remember what Christ accomplished for us and live in light of that. Live in light of what God has done for us. Remember that it's only by God's grace that we're saved and adopted as his children. Remember that. And then go out and live like a son and live like a daughter. Second, I have to adopt the characteristics that build unity. Remember that as sons and daughters of God, we're called to be in community with one another. We're a family. 
They're supposed to be the brotherly and sisterly bond with one another. As a church, we need to embrace these Christ-like attributes. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We need to embrace these so that the church can maintain unity. Got to remember that pride has no place in a church that wants to be unified. I was a wrestler in middle and high school. And I love my high school wrestling coach. He's a really close friend of mine. He's a Packers fan, so we always had that little tension between us. Um, but I, I love that man. And one day, my senior year, he brought out this, this message that he preached to us over and over and over again that season. He go, all right, guys, here's the rule. Can't have any energy vampires this season. I was like, what the heck is an energy vampire? What does, what does that even mean? And he told us, the energy vampires are those guys in the team that are just filled with pride and bitterness. And they just love to bicker and fight and complain about every little thing. And the problem with those energy vampires, they suck out all of the positive energy in that wrestling room. And they divide a team. They build disunity. And they distract us from the goal. They, they take out all the positive energy and then just fill us in with bad energy. And that is destructive and divisive. But when a team is united, those energy vampires are gone. That pride is gone. And the team is pushing each other. They have their eyes on the prize. They're working towards the same thing. That's a tough team to beat. That is a team that nobody wants to go against. When the team is wrestling for one another. That's a tough team to stop. Isn't it the same way with the church? It's like how bad energy and bad attitudes can spread through a team. Pride, arrogance, bitterness can just fly through the church. And it breaks down unity and it destroys the bonds of peace. But when, like a good sports team, when the church is united, when the church has their eyes in the prize of, of growing and building one another up in love and moving towards the gospel and spreading the gospel, That's an unstoppable force. That's a force that not even the gates of hell can prevail against. I'm going to invite the team back up to close us out in worship. We get to sing the doxology this morning. There's a universal purpose here, the guys. A universal purpose. We're a part of one body, with one hope, one faith, one baptism in Jesus Christ, our one Lord. All adopted by God the Father, who's over all and through all and in all. Embrace these attitudes this morning. That's the challenge. Live as an adopted son and daughter of God. I'm going to pray us out, and then I'll get the heck off stage. <laughs> God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time for us to gather together um, and just to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and convict us where we're not living up to these attributes that Paul has given to us. Lord, I just pray that you would give us strength, that your Holy Spirit would guide us towards embracing these attributes, these attitudes. And Lord, ultimately, that your purposes would be fulfilled here at Oakwood. And that unity can be built and maintained through the Spirit. God, we love you and we thank you. And we ask all this in Christ's name.